Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Last time on Man of the Crowd. And he wants to be the greatest coach ever, and there's no doubt in his mind that's what he wants to that's be. That's a legitimate goal. Yes, yes he yes. wants to be Not that. some yeah. pie in the sky. No, no, no. He wants to be considered the greatest coach that ever coached. Those goals to be great comes from a desire to add glory to your creator because he may want something for you that you can't even dream. Right. Then why limit yourself? Exactly. We're fighters, you know. We've always been fighters. Don't let somebody sneak up from behind you and hit you over the head with a bag of shit. <laughs> so the guy pulls out a knife. He slipped his hands out, and just as he pulled his hands out, punched the guy, he caught the guy, just perfect time he caught him right on the chin. Just like, bam! What's my name? It became a battle cry in our family. What's my name? Respect. That's what we're looking for in this world. What separates John from all the coaches I've ever worked with, and I've worked with some very good ones, is that John is relentless. He's relentless in the pursuit of winning. Wow. From the Baltimore Ravens, this is Man of the Crowd, a multi-episode podcast that pulls back the curtain on Ravens figures' personal lives. This season, the Harbaugh family. I'm Sarah Ellison. Who could possibly have it better than us? Nobody! We're going to attack this day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Because you are fighters, and that's what you are going to be. Today, tomorrow, you are going to fight. I can still remember when Ravens owner Steve Bashotti sat in front of the Baltimore media at his team's training facility. It was on New Year's Eve in 2007. And I remember it clearly because I was there and because I was struck by this refreshing honesty that I really didn't expect. And I can still see it in my mind now. The auditorium was full of reporters and there was Bashadi in front of a microphone. And he takes this deep breath after announcing that he was firing Brian Billick after nine years as the head coach. And then he said, and I'll never forget it, that he was afraid he was making the wrong decision. That's not a normal thing for an NFL owner to admit. We made the very difficult decision to fire Brian this morning. Uh, it was made extremely difficult, obviously because of our personal relationship with Brian. He's a tireless worker and he's very dedicated to his craft. He's a very good friend of mine. In order to be successful, you have to take chances, and in order to take chances, you have to listen to your heart. You have to go with your gut, and you believe with a track record 
that when, when you get the answer, you go with it. And it doesn't mean that you don't pray on it, and it doesn't mean that you don't fear being wrong, because I do fear being wrong. I you, there is no chance I could be three coaches past Brian Billick nine years from now, and uh, and uh, trying to solve this puzzle. It's such a difficult business, and how much blame you put on different people, and how much. Uh, you hold yourself responsible is something that is new to me and uh, and I hope that over time that uh, Baltimore views me as a uh, uh, quality of an owner as Brian Billick was uh, head football coach. So I've got some catching up to do to the man that I just uh, asked to step down today and uh, Jerry's out on, on me. me. Brian's, Brian's already, already got, got his Super Bowl. So we are nine years later. You're not three three head coaches into it. <laughs> uh, you've lifted the Lombardi Trophy with John. So how are you feeling now about your decision? I'm feeling great about it. You know, we felt pretty good about our decision. Uh, so I had high hopes, but I wasn't coming off a failed coach. So the trepidation was simply that, that he was a he was a very accomplished guy. Yeah. And I thought it was time to make a change, but certainly scarier than making a change if you've got a guy for two or three years and he's won 10 games and you're just moving on. You yeah. know, it, that the bar's pretty low. It's hard so to go down from there. Brian set the bar pretty high. So John, John better be successful. <laughs> yeah. So fast forward nine years. And here I'm sitting with Bashadi in his office, discussing that gut-wrenching coaching change and why he did it. I think you can tell by the sound of his voice that he's genuinely pleased that he did, right? Well, as we're talking, Bashadi's wearing his typical office attire. He's got on his blue jeans and casual shirt, and it really doesn't match the formal setting of this all-wood, luxurious office and leather chairs that we're sitting in, but Steve is anything but formal. Instead, he's got this laid-back, fun-loving personality. He's the type of guy you could hang out with while watching a Chirps basketball game. Now, having said that, the more he speaks, the more you can see that he's legitimately brilliant. You can see why Forbes magazine says he's worth nearly $4 billion. And he's a self-made billionaire, by the way. Anyway, as we're talking, it's easy for me to see why Bashadi originally feared being wrong. Because he's absolutely right. Billick was not a failed head coach. While things trailed off at the end, he did have 80 regular season wins overall. Eight playoff games, five playoff wins, a Super Bowl victory. And other than Bill Belichick, how many active coaches today would love to have a head coaching record like that? I'd say just about all of them. And on a more emotional side, Billick injected Baltimore with so much joy by bringing the Lombardi Trophy home. The city had mourned the loss of football for more than a decade after the Baltimore Colts left for Indianapolis. How many of you still remember this Super Bowl 35 post-game celebration and trophy presentation with Billick? Ten seconds left in the Super Bowl. Ravens lead 34-7. They run a drop play, and that should do it. Tiki Barber stopped near the line of scrimmage, and the Ravens are the champions of the world. Hallelujah! The Ravens pour out to the middle of the field. Brian Billick in the middle of that somewhere, Tom. It oh, was... Scott, this is so good for, for football in Baltimore, the city. I mean, the state of Maryland. Some they, They've got to be proud of this ball club. We congratulate you 
We congratulate all of your players and Coach Billick and his staff, your whole organization for bringing this Super Bowl championship back to Baltimore and to Baltimore's great fans for the first time in three decades. Congratulations. Let me bring in Brian Billick. This is an amazing thing. In just your second year as the head coach in Baltimore, you're bringing the title back to Maryland. How did you do it? Well, I'll tell you what, they, I've been at this profession a while, but these guys here taught me, taught me this year for the first time in 25 years in the business about what really teamwork is. And it's because uh, it's of these guys right here. You know, your team had a certain swagger all week. We could see it here. Um, and on the field today, again, you just shut down the Giants, forced five turnovers. Tell me, does this validate your defense maybe as the best in the history of the National Football League? I'm biased, but who cares? Someone tell me they're not. I'll, I'll argue it to the death. So, obviously, it would have been a lot easier to fire Billick if he had a losing record or wasn't a part of such a momentous milestone for the city. I'll bet many of you are still grateful for what he did. And so was Bashadi, which made the decision to fire him so much more difficult. And then, let's add something else on top of all of that. Bashadi was still new to NFL ownership. He didn't become majority owner until 2004, so firing Billick was his first major move, and he was taking a risk. Bashadi approached the sensitive situation by leaning upon his experience as the co-founder of what is now called the Allegis Group. That's the largest staffing firm in the country. So basically, Bashadi made his money by sizing up and hiring the right talent. Yeah, maybe he had never hired an NFL head coach before, but he was about as qualified as you can get. But here's the question you may be asking yourself. If Billick was so successful and Bashadi was so nervous about being wrong, then why take the risk at all? Well, what I learned was that first, Bashadi wanted consistency. His goal was, and still is, to have the Ravens in the playoff mix every season. He wants to avoid the dips that some other franchises endure. And during his four years as majority owner with Billick, the team only enjoyed one playoff berth. Bashadi explained at the time of Billick's dismissal that he thought the team was capable of more. Let's go back to the presser that day. He was very gracious to me when we met today. He understood, um, at least gave me the confidence that, uh, I, that I was true to go with my gut, that I believed that uh, it was time for a change. Uh, I believe that we have uh, the nucleus of a team that can get back to the Super Bowl. And uh, we felt that in the next five years, we had a better chance with a new coach uh, than, uh, than leaving Brian in that position. The second reason to take the risk? Well, the Ravens wanted to change the culture of the locker room. Senior Vice President of Public Relations Kevin Byrne, who, by the way, was appointed by Bashadi to be on the search committee for a new head coach, he explained that the locker room was deeply divided back then, and that negative culture fed into the losing. When the team decided to part ways with Brian Billick, what was the goal when you started the coaching search? We wanted to find somebody who could bring the team together and uh, that there would not be a faction on the team, that there would not be a defensive team, an offensive team, and kind of special teams, but somebody who could bring all groups together, coalesce them, and keep them together, and keep all 53 focused 
on one task, and that is winning. The team, the team, the team. The team, the team, the <laughs> team. You couldn't have picked a better yeah, person. Yeah, which he said from day one and day two in his interviews. <laughs> right. Bushadi and his hiring committee wanted to find a new head coach that could bring the offense and the defense together again. But that wasn't going to be an easy task. Yeah, sure, they had the nucleus of a Super Bowl winning team. They had the future Hall of Famers of Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. And those guys, along with the rest of the defense, got along super well with defensive coordinator Rex Ryan. But that nucleus also contributed to the factions in the locker room. There may not be any bigger personalities in all of football than Lewis and Reed, so they had a major influence over their teammates. I think those big personalities had spent, you know, the, the better part of 10 years with a defense-dominated team. And I think that they naturally took the position that we win games and offense doesn't lose games. Mm. And that was, a, that was a really bad vibe. And the more our offense struggled, the more Rex and Ray and Ed uh, took the position that we're the ones that take chances. The offense runs the ball and then punts, and then we create turnovers. <laughs> and, and score and, them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, it produced a Super Bowl, and eight years later, in 2008, they were still of that mindset. Bushadi went on to explain that you can't totally hate on the defense, and I get that. I think it's totally understandable how the Ravens got to that point, because that 2000 defense, it's arguably the best in NFL history the best, and I'm not exaggerating. The broadcast crew and Super Bowl 35 MVP Ray Lewis knew how special it was the day the Ravens became world champions. Let's go back to the day when the Ravens manhandled the New York Giants 34-7. The Ravens allowed just 23 points in four postseason games and only one of those games at home. Their defense uh, has to go down as one of the greatest to ever put on the pads, if not the greatest of all time. In my opinion, it is the greatest of for all time. For one season, Tom, yeah, for one season, I can't imagine anybody playing better defense than this team. No, you're absolutely correct. It's just this, what they did this season in, in, in staying together as a team and having fun as a team and not getting upset with the offense when they didn't score any touchdowns for, you know, for five games, unbelievable. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is the most valuable player of Super Bowl 35. Voted on by a select panel from the media and by the fans on the internet. Ray Lewis, tell me about this performance by you and your defense today. Hey man, there's, there's nothing like this right now. I mean, it's just, it's just ecstatic the way we just come out and we played today. It was incredible just to see the way we just came out and played as a team. But this defense has been doing this all year and never, never got the credit. But it's one thing they can never take away from us. We're the best ever, best ever right now. Here's an important note. After winning the Super Bowl, that defense continued to dominate the league year after year. And the offense continued to struggle. Think about this. From 2000 to 2007, the offense never ranked in the league's top 10. But during that same time, the defense almost always ranked at about the top 5. Baltimore was proud of its dominant defensive reputation, 
The city almost seemed content continuing with that identity, but it came at the expense of the offense. The reputation was so ingrained that it was hard to imagine anything else in Baltimore, which is what Ravens columnist John Eisenberg points out. The offense had... It was, there were so many struggles here. I mean, you go back and it was just so many days where it was, you know, just praying for Matt Stover to hit three or four field goals. I mean, people could forget never find that. A quarterback. Before, we could never find a quarterback. And it was, you know, and then the one year with McNair, sort of, it sort of just ends catastrophically, you know, with the one loss in the playoffs. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I think the defensive guys definitely ruled and probably thought, you know, uh, you know, we're the team. It was impossible to imagine. It was impossible to imagine the Baltimore Ravens as a balanced unit. You couldn't imagine it because the defense had carried the offense for years going back to the Super Bowl. So how could you, how could the defensive players who are young guys, how could they think, oh, we're just going to share it from now on? Well, you know, you're going to have to prove that to me because certainly hadn't been the case since like Vinny Testaverde in 1997. You know, it hadn't been the case since then. But Bashadi wasn't about to write off the offense altogether. Could you imagine if he did? It's one thing for the defense to help pick up the slack for a while, right? For one strength to help compensate for a weakness. But I think you'd agree it's a whole other thing if it remained a weakness, rarely if ever getting stronger. And under Billick, it didn't seem like the culture was changing, so Bashadi and the Ravens were determined to find a new head coach that could bring them together again. At that press conference on New Year's Day, Bashadi set his sights very, very high. You know, the average tenure is four years, and, uh, and hopefully we're going to find one for, the, for at least another nine years. I said to my wife last night that uh, there is a Hall of Fame coach out there, and it's our job to find him. So the search for the third head coach in Ravens history was underway. Bushadi put together a hiring committee that was led by Ravens general manager Ozzie Newsom. It included Ravens president Dick Cass, Kevin Byrne, and several people on Newsom's staff, including George Kokinas, Vince Newsom, Eric DaCosta, and Pat Moriarty. The process for reviewing candidates was extremely thorough. The committee initially compiled an exhaustive list that was later whittled down to 30 candidates and then eventually to six that they would bring in for interviews. The six included Rex Ryan, Tony Sperano, Brian Schottenheimer, Jim Caldwell, Jason Garrett, and Harbaugh. If you look closely, you might notice one commonality between these guys. Do you know what it is? None of them had been an NFL head coach before. Bashadi told me that was by design. I tend to I tend to interview and try and get a feel for the person, not the job. So none of those candidates had been a head coach. You know, I think my just my experiences in business were to take somebody that we felt we could help mold into a great head coach. Our instincts said that this was a guy that we would really like to partner with, that we really liked the person and felt that the support structure that we had could help fill in anything that John or any of the other candidates lacked in head coaching experience. Thanks to Bashadi and Newsom, the Ravens are known for being one of the top front offices in the league. 
As such, they not only wanted to find a head coach, but they wanted to find somebody worthy of a partnership status, a partnership status with the people already in place. They really didn't want a veteran that was already set in his ways. Well, while the committee was making phone calls for references on the finalists, an interesting thing happened. Bashadi received an unexpected call. It was from a Ravens rival. Any guess on who it was from? Well, believe it or not, it was Patriots head coach Bill Belichick. Belichick was calling to recommend that the Ravens hire Harbaugh. Everyone in the building was surprised by this unprompted endorsement, including Harbaugh himself because A, Belichick was considered the best coach in the league, B, he was an opponent, and C, at the time, Belichick and Harbaugh really didn't have that much history together. What did you do to impact Coach Belichick for him to call the Ravens and say you should hire this guy? <laughs> well, did you, how well did you guys even know each other? No, probably had some good special teams games against him, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say. I mean, you know, I didn't talk to him at all. I mean, it wasn't like we were having, like, we didn't have regular conversations. That's crazy. So you guys weren't, like, super great friends. For no, him I never worked that. with him or anything. Harbaugh told me about some brief interactions with Belichick here and there since really the early 1990s, but... None of them seemed particularly significant to Harbaugh. He wondered if a former colleague, Scott O'Brien, put in a good word. But if it wasn't him, maybe it was some Eagles-Patriots special teams battles that left an impression on Belichick. Or maybe some of those small conversations at the Combine. But really, nobody at the Ravens knows, and they still don't. These are just limited interactions that Harbaugh came up with as he tried to figure out how he left an impression on Belichick. And that was, that's, we knew each other. Whether he'd even remember that, I don't even know if he would. The connection was so unclear that Byrne, the Ravens PR guy who once worked with Belichick at the Browns, he was skeptical of the endorsement. He called Steve Bishotti directly. And unprompted. Unprompted and said, you know, John, you should pay attention to John Harbaugh. Or I heard you interviewing John Harbaugh and uh, he's good. And so when Steve mentioned it, I remember joking, beware of Greeks bearing gifts, you know, <laughs> because, you know, why is Bill going to help another AFC team? I work with Bill for, with, for five years, right. with, with him for five years. He is not kind to other teams. So. You want to know what's ironic about this whole situation? After Belichick put in a good word for Harbaugh, Harbaugh became one of his bigger rivals. Their teams have clashed in the playoffs four times since Harbaugh was hired. Both coaches won two of the four games, each dashing the other Super Bowl hopes, which I'll get into in another episode, but the Ravens are just one of a few teams who are not intimidated by the Patriots. Anyway, whatever Harbaugh did to get the recommendation of such a respected and accomplished coach... He'll always be grateful. It's one of those things that I cherish. Right. You know, what, how can you not? I just cherish the fact that he would do that. So no matter how many tough battles we have and whatever conversations we might have, you know, I mean, I'll always cherish him and, and look up to him in, in ways and always be grateful for that. Well, you know? in addition to Belichick, the Ravens talked with countless references. And after all that work was done, and after the first round of interviews, they narrowed their top candidates down to two people. Obviously Harbaugh, and then Jason Garrett, who was the offensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys. The Ravens knew who they wanted to make their next head coach, 
So they made an offer. But it wasn't to Harbaugh. It was to Garrett. Bashadi explained to me how and why it went down that way. We had him rated as high as Jason Garrett and being trying to replace Brian Billick at that time, he was the quote hot candidate. He was the one that everybody was after. And I think there were only four coaching openings at that year, which is actually low as far as the NFL goes. Yeah. And so, you know, we made a play for Jason because obviously I wanted to deliver, I wanted to prove that we could deliver the best one. As it turned out, you know, Jason was encouraged by Jerry to hang tight and that he'd get it. Bashadi's referring to Jerry Jones, the Dallas Cowboys owner. He told Garrett that if he'd wait for a couple years, he'd eventually be the head coach in Dallas. When I found that we were negotiating against him staying as a coordinator, that just burst his bubble in my eyes. I mean, I would have rather lost him to Atlanta Falcons. The Atlanta Falcons had a head coaching job open that year as well. But when I realized that he was that in love with Dallas, that he was willing to stay as an offensive coordinator, I completely lost interest in him. And that's when we came back in that next morning and said, do we need to open this up again or do we need to get John John Harbaugh back from Philadelphia? And to a man, everybody said, get him back. We had him as highly rated and he's obscure candidate. And we may take a little grief from that, but Mm -hmm. we don't care about outside grief. We have, we all had great feelings for John. And if John had been the hot candidate, he would have been made the first offer. So, right. you know, uh, but though that's really how that happened. So when we got him back to Baltimore um, after the Jason Garrett thing fell apart, then I don't think we had much reservation at all. Okay. You know, I think it was uh, uh, grilling maybe to see how he would react. So we may have been a little tougher on him the second go around. Um, but that was just to... I don't want to say see him sweat, but we wanted to see how he would perform in a second interview. Yeah, and under pressure a little Mm -hmm. bit. So after moving on from Garrett, the Ravens brought back Harbaugh for that second interview. And Byrne explains how Harbaugh performed under that design pressure. And he was pretty convincing. It says so much about two people. Okay. Steve Bishotti and John Harbaugh. First, for Steve to have the committee in the room, this is a special moment for the owner, you know, to pick his head coach and offer him the job. That, that historically has been private. I can't imagine other owners, including other people. Mm-hmm. So we're all sitting around the boardroom table and Steve's at the head. And remember, Ozzy's to his left and Dick is to his right. And I'm next to Ozzy and we're talking about John. And finally, Ozzy just says, he's the guy. You know, and, and so Steve goes, well, what questions do we have about him? You know, so then room people are speaking up. The obvious is he's never been a head coach before. He's never been an offensive or defensive coordinator. Those are the normal routes to become an NFL head right. coach. And so that's the only mystery. Can he do it? Right. You know, and uh, so Steve says, well, why don't we bring him in? So he, they bring in John, and John's basically told, we have some reservations about you. 
then how would you overcome the fact that you've never been a coordinator, <laughs> yeah. never been a Can't head change coach, that. even at the high school level? <laughs> right. And John, you know, as that John can get that bright-eyed, fresh look. He's got a great energetic look when mm -hmm. he's got something he wants to say and his eyes light up and he goes, well, look at the people at this table. I will use all of this strength to make me a great head coach. And I will be a great head coach. I'm going to be a great head coach for somebody. But with the people in this room, I can be a great head coach here. And Steve said something like, um, well, we believe you can. And you could see John's eyes kind of wander around the room. And then he looked over at Steve and he goes, are you offering me the job? <laughs> and Steve stands up and reaches his hand out to John, who is sitting to my right now and between Ozzy and I and Steve says yes and then John stands up and shakes his hand and says well then I'll accept it <laughs> and I thought wow what a powerful moment to be in there yeah little did Harbaugh know that his answer was exactly the kind of thing that Bashadi wanted to hear Harbaugh showed a balance of confidence and humility in his answer his confidence showed through by emphatically stating that he would be a great coach. But his humility was also made manifest by saying that he'd be great with the help of the people already in place. He demonstrated he was a team player. Those were the attributes that Bashadi was looking for, not just in his next head coach, but in his next partner. I read Harbaugh's answer back to Bashadi to jog his memory of the day and get his reaction nearly a decade later. John said, look, I don't have all the answers, but I'll know where to find them. I can be your head coach. And I know today that I will be a good head coach. And with all the help of your expertise in this room, we can be a great team. And maybe that will make me a great coach. And you should make me your head coach. And if you do, we will win. Sounds like John, doesn't it? It sounds exactly like John. Nothing's changed. And he did win. Nothing's changed. And he is still nine years later. Uh, an incredible team player, you know? Um, yeah. That's the thing that I have experienced in my life that uh, I see people that rise to the top never stop learning from their partners. And others get to the point where they think they know everything. And it's a very lonely job for John to have to uh, deal with that pressure and make those decisions. They say it's lonely at the top, that's a top job. He's got a great day-in, day-out partner in Ozzy, and he still looks to me for advice as kind of the fly on the wall. He knows that I'm not caught up in the day-to-day -day and that I can mm -hmm. give him a perspective that's completely different. And so we still enjoy um, scrimmaging, as Ozzy calls it, uh, as much as we ever did. Okay, can we just review here? Despite never being a head coach, or an offensive coordinator, or a defensive coordinator, at any level, high school, college, or the pros, Harbaugh still convinced Ravens Brass that he was the one to lead the team back to the Super Bowl. And it wasn't just because he had the personality and leadership style that made him a great partner, even though that was still huge. But there were three other major factors as well. First, few people know the game of football and everything that surrounds it as well as Harbaugh. That's just what happens when your dad has 41 years of coaching experience. 
I'll get more into Harbaugh's childhood in a later episode, but I can quickly tell you that after talking to Ozzie Newsom, I know he definitely saw that as an asset. Well, if you have any opportunity to uh, be around Jack Harbaugh, their mm-hmm. father, then you can understand, or Jackie, their mom. Mm-hmm. It's football through and through. John, Jim, they grew up, you know, around both Sheriff Meckler and mm-hmm. Michigan. So it's, it's been football. I mean, they had football at the breakfast table. They had football at the dinner table. So, you know, they grew up around sports. They grew up around, you know, being around players that uh, their dad and mom would invite to dinner. So football was in their blood. Second, while being a special teams coordinator isn't the typical road to becoming a head coach, the Ravens still saw it as a strength, especially with nearly 20 years experience. And here's why. When you're a special teams coach, you have to work with all 53 players, including players on the bubble, not just the superstars or half the players on either offense or defense. Bashadi talks about that asset the day he introduced Harbaugh as the Ravens' new head coach in 2008. We have John here. Uh, John, as all of you know, uh, comes from a, a football background, a family of football people, um, and uh, uh a special teams background, which to, to some is a disadvantage and to others, it's, uh, it's quite an advantage. Uh, he's dealing with the entire team. He's dealing with pro bowlers. He's dealing with uh, uh, the 53rd man on the roster and making him feel like his contribution is, could be the most important one of the day. And he's done that very successfully. Based on our talk, Newsom still sees a special teams background as a strength today. When we started to drill down on John, John was not only a successful uh, special teams coach, but then he went on to become a defensive back coach. Yeah. Uh, you know, working with Jim Johnson. So that gave him the expertise of two phases of the game. He could, you know, he could always straighten out the special team. He understand understood defense. Now all he had to do was now gain some experience on the offensive side. And, and another thing, when you're a special teams coach, mm-hmm. You know a lot about what it is about developing players and dealing with that 52nd and 53rd player on the roster. Newsom went on to tell me that Harbaugh has evolved into a strong offensive coach, and he knows exactly who he wants to be on that side of the ball. John Harbaugh's brother, Jim, he's known for his offensive knowledge after playing quarterback his entire life. So I asked Jim if he could steal one coaching attribute from his brother, John, what would it be? He hit on the very theme that Newsom talked about. Uh, with John, it's you know his his real incredible grasp of all of football, offensively, defensively, special teams. Uh, he could coordinate an offense. He could coordinate a defense. He could he could coordinate a special teams and has. Uh, he's got an incredible grasp of the entire game. I would incorporate that into my game. And now the third factor in hiring Harbaugh, and this is a big one, so listen up. It was Harbaugh's philosophy for what the culture of a football team should be. And it was the perfect remedy for the divide inside the Ravens locker room. Harbaugh made his philosophy crystal clear in his first press conference in Baltimore. As far as this football team, you know, when you grow up a coach's kid and and your dad coaches for Bo Schembechler and you come up through the years and, I mean, you can't have a better childhood. I mean, Rick Leach stuffed me in a locker one time and uh, Donnie Dufek taped me to a goalpost, Steve. So, you know, who's got it better than that? You know, we thought you didn't have a childhood if you didn't grow up like that. But when you grow up in that environment, part of your life values, the thing you learn there are three important things. 
putting together a football team. Three important things. Number one, the team. Number two, the second most important thing is the team. And the third most important thing is the team. And we're going to stick with that through and through, beginning to end. That's what it's all about. His philosophy of the team, the team, the team isn't some earth-shattering new idea, but it's one thing to preach it, and it's another thing to implement it. And there was faith that Harbaugh could pull it off. So in the end, Bashadi, Newsom, and the rest of the committee were extremely happy with their selection. And believe me, it was a good thing Harbaugh had their full support, because he wouldn't get such a warm welcome from his players. Few of them had even heard of Harbaugh, including defensive starter Jarrett Johnson. Had you ever even really heard of him before he was hired to be the head coach? Um, not, not particularly. I knew that we knew that the Eagles had a um, a good special teams unit and had a really good um, special teams coach. But a lot of times with special team coaches, um, even the really popular ones, um, they're, they're not widely known. You know, throughout the league. I mean. Um, it's known they have a, you just play them, you have a, just a good unit with a good team. And they were like that pretty much every year. So, but I, I didn't know a whole lot about it. Definitely didn't know, um, the, the history of, of the, of the family. So while Bashadi liked the idea of hiring a fresh young leader, Harba's obscure background, it didn't help in winning over his new veteran players, which that was exactly what he feared. The day before his hire was official, Kevin Byrne asked Harbaugh, what his biggest concern was. And Harbaugh was honest. In an article that Byrne wrote in 2008, Harbaugh said the following, and I quote, My concern is I don't have any credibility with your players. I'll be that secondary and special teams coach from the Eagles, but I will earn credibility. I'll go on the road and visit players. I'll spend time with the ones who are in Baltimore now. I guarantee you this, before the offseason program starts in March, I will have looked them all in the eye and started earning my credibility. Close quote. Unfortunately, that process took Harbaugh much longer than he anticipated. I mean, maybe if he had the experience of someone like, say, Bill Parcells, who coached four different NFL teams and won two Super Bowls, with a background like that, then you have instant credibility. Or even if Harbaugh had been a successful offensive coordinator for another team, then his mission to unite the locker room and build up that offense would have carried a little more weight. But a nameless and a faceless longtime special teams coordinator was a totally different story. I mean, could you imagine walking in and standing in front of all these veteran football players, led by the legendary Ray Lewis, and then you ask them to put the offense on equal footing? Ugh. Ravens columnist John Eisenberg took a stab at what that scene might have looked like. Yeah, I think he definitely had an uphill battle when he was hired. I mean, this team, uh, you know, you had guys, I mean, you had Ray Lewis, you know, who won a Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And so had been to the mountaintop and, you know, start right there. I mean, you've got a guy who's been to the mountaintop and he wants, to, you're going to have to prove to him that you, that you can take him there again. Yeah. And so, you know, and he's an unknown guy. So totally, uh, you know, the first meeting, I am sure, was like, who, who, who do we have here? Turns out, Eisenberg wasn't too far off. Harbaugh said he knew within the first meeting that he'd have an uphill battle getting the entire team to buy in. 
That uphill battle lasted five years. Five years. What was that like for you to come in here? You know that they're looking for you to kind of change that culture. You're coming into a locker room with, I don't know that there's any bigger personalities in the NFL than, than Ray Lewis and Ed Reed and some of the others. Basically what it was was creating a vision that they could all believe in and buy into and understand. Yeah. And that took a lot longer than I thought. I, mean, I thought I could do it in the first meeting, you know, and set <laughs> right, the pace. Right. And what I saw in the eyes of the guys in the first meeting was just basically almost complete like, no, we're not buying into this. Mm. It, it, was, it was by far the, the biggest challenge. And I don't think I realized or recognized at the time exactly how big a challenge it was going to be and how um, kind of ingrained uh, that culture was here. And not that it was a bad culture in any way. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't, its time had passed, you know, here. So from a philosophical standpoint or just an approach, you know, it's always been about the team. You know, that's how we were raised, the team the team, the team, and that's that's all that matters. And I, I hear Coach Belichick say it's all about the team, and I hear Pete Carroll say it's all about the team, and it's not a new thing, it's a, it's a real thing, but but it was, and it wasn't that it wasn't about the team here before, it was just the way the team dynamic was organized, it really was about the defense and, and kind of the, other, the rest of the team supporting the defense, sort of. And, uh, and it, it had been very successful and it was really great. And we still have, we still have that today. We still have that tradition, mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's a really great thing. But you've got to make that into a positive. It can't be, it can't be a negative. It can't become something that is, is holding back the team, you yeah. know. And I think Steve felt like that's, that's where it had been. But yet we wanted to do it. We didn't want to do it by just by, by destroying. We wanted to do it by transforming. Okay. And the transformation was going to be those guys building us to that place and buying into that and believing in it. That was easier said than done. Remember how we talked last week about how the Harbaugh's relentlessly and enthusiastically fight for a higher purpose? Well, this team first philosophy? Yeah, that constitutes as one of those higher purposes. And Harbaugh wasn't giving any leeway on it. None. From the players' perspectives, he came in tough, ready to battle. It didn't matter how accomplished a player was. He was going to fall in line, even if that player was potential Hall of Fame safety, Ed Reed. Reed didn't seem too enthusiastic with some of the changes Harbaugh was implementing, and let's just say it made for a strained relationship. Harbaugh explains that dynamic while at a coach's clinic in Michigan. We got to Baltimore, and, and, and we got, had a guy named Ed Reed, okay? Greatest safety in the history of the game. And Ed, Ed is a great player and a great guy. I mean, studied football, loved it and everything, but he was up and down. He would tell you to this day, when, when the hood was up and the face was covered up, that was an Ed that you really weren't going to talk to that day. Other times he'd come in, he'd smile, and he'd, he'd be your guy. But we had a lot of clashes early on because Ed didn't like the way we were doing things, didn't see it. We would, I, I would make a point. I didn't talk to him because I didn't really appreciate the way he was treating me. and He wasn't being respectful of the program. And we'd walk by each other and not say hello. And I, but I knew it bothered him, and I knew it, but, but before that happened, I told him, I, I said something along the lines of, I, I know you, you may not like me, and you may not be doing the, we may not be doing things the way you think they should be done, but that's not gonna change the way I feel about you, man. I love you. And then just walk on. I don't need to say hi to him for three weeks if he's gonna be in a bad mood. Sometimes Harbaugh and Reed's clashes happen in front of the entire team. Ravens defensive back Lardarius Webb explained what his very first team meeting was like after being selected by Baltimore in the 2009 NFL Draft. But I need to give a little background to that meeting. By the time Webb was drafted, Harbaugh had already been running the team for a little over a year. 
And in that first year, the Ravens finished with a really strong 11-5 record and made it all the way to the AFC Championship game with a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach. That's a spectacular first year in terms of game results, but that battle with the players, including with Reed, continued into year two. And that's when Webb entered the scene. He played safety in college, just like Ed Reed, and dreamed of playing like him. So you can understand that Webb was pretty pumped to be on the same team as his idol, right? And he was also stoked about meeting him for the very first time. But Webb was in for a big and awkward surprise. Here he is with my colleagues, Ryan Mink and Garrett Downing. When I first got here, you know, I wore number 20 in college. I wanted to be every, <laughs> had his pictures up all over my wall. I get drafted to this team. Ray Lewis, I, I, I did not care to meet Ray Lewis. I, when I came to this team, I had forgot Ray Lewis even played on this team. I was just like, oh, was where is Ed Reed? I was like, Ed Reed, where is he? <laughs> get in the meeting and um, <laughs> he's like, it's the first meeting. He's like, Harp's, Harp's like, he's like sitting down like this, like leaning back in his chair in the front. And then Harp's like, um, Sam talking and he's like, Ed, sit up. Yeah, it was like, he sat up, you know, he sat up. That thing, you know, cars went back talking, he was like, Ed, you either sit up or you can leave. Ed got up and just walked out the, <laughs> I was like, huh? <laughs> Golly, he just walked out. <laughs> that is hilarious. I was like, this is my first time getting to see him, like, he gone. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, this is what the NFL is about. Reed was just the tip of the iceberg. Harbaugh also had to take on a locker room battle with Terrell Suggs, Jarrett Johnson, and Ray Lewis. Next week on Man of the Crowd. I think when John came in in the building, he was expecting a fight. It was getting really ugly at practice. So I just went over and I told him, I said, hey, that's enough. I said, we're a team. And that sideline kind of unleashed on me. And he's kind of you know, looking at me, I go, you want to go? You want to go right now? Rex was, was our guy, you know, he, we were very loyal to him. As he was very loyal to us. And we wanted him to get the job. Horace first got here, man, oh, he was just like tough, way tough, tough. This is my team, you right. know, a new coach. I don't care if y'all older guys, this is my team. You know, we didn't like it at first, you know, like, yo, why you, why you move me away from this guy? Why you move me away from that guy? And them having to take no for an answer, let's say. No, we're not going to view it through this prism anymore. And I told him that will be your biggest challenge. Hey, Man of the Crowd listeners, before you go, I just wanted to say thank you for such a strong showing of support for this podcast. We've been very happy with how many there are of you out there listening, and we'd love to have even more people find us. So please consider rating the podcast and writing a review. The more subscribers and the more positive ratings that Man of the Crowd gets, the more others will be able to find it too. Also, don't forget to continually check back on our microsite at baltimoreravens.com backslash man of the crowd for content that complements what you're listening to here, including biographies of key interviews I've conducted, photo galleries, and more. And as always, I want to hear from you guys after each episode. 
If you have any comments or questions or whatever, hit me up on Twitter. My handle is at SG Ellison. I look forward to your feedback and would love to interact with you. Okay, that's it. That's all I've got. But I'll be back next week with episode four, John's Battle in Baltimore. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.